Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I'm here to guide you weekly through the haunted corridors of contemporary horror literature. I almost said horror fiction, but we'll also be delving into some real-world terrors too along the way. So each week, I'll be speaking to a writer who plays the field, so to speak, in the darker regions of the literary landscape. I'm excited by the prospect of chatting with some of the biggest names in horror and asking them all about the how, when and whys that fascinate me and hopefully fascinate you too. If you're the kind of person who likes to turn to the story notes, the back of a bumper collection of short stories and find out where the story came from, then this should be the show for you. The reason I'm doing this, well, I spent more years than was healthy researching and teaching horror and gothic literature. I left that life with a thesis, a broken brain and an empty bank balance, only to find that in the real world, very few people could give the slightest toss about academic theories on the postmodern ghost story or even care what The Shining is really about. You say you're into gothic and everyone thinks that means you wear a cloak, listen to sad music and get sunburned easily. As one of my friends so rightly put it, no one ever wants to talk to the guy at the party about his research into cannibalism. Hopefully, if you listen to this, you are an exception to that rule. So with the time and space afforded by lockdown and and when better to start a podcast about all things grim and gruesome than in the middle of a global health crisis, in the midst of all that, I reached out to the community, the horror community, which is bigger, better and more diverse than ever. And I pulled together a serious roster of horror writing talent. I can't believe how many great writers have signed up already, especially for a podcast that doesn't even exist at the moment I'm saying this. First up is a huge name in the genre, a man who may have written the most vital horror novel of the last decade and whose latest book is terrifyingly perfect for 2020. It's Paul Tremblay, author of A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, The Cabin at the End of the World, and now the pandemic shocker Survivor Song. We talk about a lot of things, post-pandemic America, Trump, and writing horror in the era of disinformation. We discuss his mission statement for horror, but mostly we talk books, those he's written, those he's writing, and those he's read. And if anything is said in passing that catches your ear, don't worry, I'll have a full list of titles after the interview and in the show notes. So for now, it excites me greatly to say, for the first time ever, let's go to our guest and talk scared. Hi, Paul, and welcome to Talking Scared. You are the inaugural guest of the podcast, and I'm incredibly grateful you've agreed to give the, your time to this fledgling little project. Um, so to, to, to get the ball rolling, obviously, this summer you release your fifth book that falls you know, within the horror genre, whatever that may mean, Survivor Song. Can we start off with a brief intro to that? I, I'd rather ask you to synopsize because it avoids me being responsible for any spoilers. So would you like to tell us briefly about Survivor Song? Uh, yes, of course. So Survivor Song intro, or a little summary, I guess, you know, I would say that you know, so this book sort of opens in the middle of a, of a new outbreak of a super rabies virus. Although it's really, although it's hard, you know, if you read it now, it's hard to say, like, you know, people call it a pandemic novel, but like in, in actuality, it's it's really an epidemic or a localized outbreak within, essentially within Massachusetts. But, you know, I think the book's description mentions New England. I've already butchered this. But anyway, 
So it's an outbreak of a super rabies virus uh, near Boston or in Massachusetts. And it, it's, it sort of just drops you in the middle of it or in the middle of the beginning of this outbreak. Um, and the novel really focuses on two friends, uh, Natalie, who is 38 weeks pregnant, and her best friend, Dr. Romola Sherman, who also happens to be a pediatrician. And it's really about four to six hours of them trying to navigate to navigate, um, you know, what's going on in society during this, you know, the early days of an outbreak of the super rabies virus. You know, it's not much of a spoiler because it happens within the first pages of the book, but, you know, Natalie's husband is killed by an infected person and she is bitten. So there is sort of a race against the clock sort of element of the novel where, you know, they're trying to get Natalie, um, Natalie help. Yeah. So you say it's not a pandemic novel, um, but, you know, all of the all of the press and all of the reviews, my, my own included, have, have 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 not failed to point out. You know, the, the prescience, the seeming prescience of the novel. Um, I mean, it's full of references to things that things like PPE and the word lockdown and and all of these, you know, R numbers and all of these things that become like the common parlance of the day. Uh, it, it may fulfil a disquieting read, but but how? I'm sure you've been asked this question, no doubt, a thousand times by now, but I've got to ask it again. What what was it like to, because it was released in, in July, so what was it like when all this was kicking off and you were thinking, I've got this book that's coming out, oh my God, was it like, a was it great marketing or was it a thought of like, oh no? Um, no, it's definitely more, m- way more to the oh no side of things. You know, and I mean, mainly, you know, worries for my own my own health, my own family's health, obviously. So when, you know, we in Massachusetts, where I live, you know, went into, you know, our first weeks of quarantine in the middle of March, obviously, we didn't know what to expect. You know, it was one of the scariest times I've ever experienced. Yeah. yeah. So then there's this like weird book that I have coming out, you know, in a few months, and I have to, I have to promote it, essentially. Um, and it was very difficult at first and not, and not in a way where it's like, oh, my God, I predicted what was going to happen. It was more just realistic worries about what was going to happen. But in terms of the book itself, like a lot of the weird prescient stuff that, you know, quote unquote, prescient stuff that happens in the novel were really, I'd say, especially in terms of what the local, um, what the local response would look like, what a local hospital's response would look like. All that information came from my sister, who is a nurse at one of the biggest hospitals in Boston. So when I was writing the book, you know, that part of it for me was really a joy. Like you so... I was, you know, I felt like super fortunate that I got to be able to work on the research part of side of this book with my sister, you know, who's one of my best friends and how many writers get that opportunity. So that was like a real, you know, when I was writing the book, like a real cool personal attachment that I had to this book. But now, you know, fast forward to 2020, not only did all this, you know, quote unquote pressure stuff happen because of my sister, I knew that she was had to live through the worst of this. So just on a personal level, that really messed with my head in March. I mean, it continues to, I mean, she, she made it through the first wave here in Massachusetts, but lives in fear of a, a second wave or the a reoccurrence of, of, you know, their hospital being overloaded like they were back in April. Yeah. So <laughs> I sort of didn't handle it very well either. I think the first interview I did was like in early April for Rolling Stone magazine. And it was a very sort of somber interview. I mean, the interviewer had just read the book too. So she was sort of like, Oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe I had to read this to the point where my American publisher, after they saw the interview, which was, I mean, it was a good interview. It was fine. And it was just sort of like brutally and rawly honest. My publisher was like, you know, you don't have to apologize for the book that you wrote. (laughs) 
you know, please don't do that sort of in a, in a polite tone for my publisher. Yeah. Well, Stephen King apologized for 2020, didn't he? I mean, all of the, all of the, there were so many things I saw like memes about, you know, this is Captain Trips, et cetera, you know, from, from the stand. So he apologized for 20, he apologized for 2020. I think you, you've got a lot less to apologize for because the, the, the epidemic itself is, is, is very different. And full disclosure, I have, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. So the last few months have been, have been a whole special kind of hell for me. Um, if anything, it's, it's actually broken my hypochondria. I feel like I've come out the other side of my hypochondria. But I have a very, very particular terror, um, almost phobic, of rabies. And th- there are no rabies in, in the UK, so it's a completely ludicrous thing to be worried about. But I, I have this, this phobia. Um, and I, I had the, 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 the joy of reading your book two days after I was bitten by a dog whilst out on a run. So, oh, of wow. course, r- reading about the symptoms and all that kind of stuff, it, it, it probably took me about three weeks to read this book because I had to keep putting it down. And normally, <laughs> I, you know, I'll, I'll, a book of that length, I'll whiz through it in, you know, three or four days. It took me about three weeks. I had to keep putting it down, read other things to kind of punctuate it a little bit. It's terrifying. But without, without, you know, setting me off, I mean, please don't trigger me on this, but, but why rabies? Why was that the thing you went for? Is it, is it, what, was it for an alternative take on the zombie or was there some other reason that you, you went with that, that particular virus? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to talk rabies in a second, but I want to go back to what you said. It was interesting about Stephen King having to apologize mm-hmm. for 2020. I mean, that's something I try to write about a little bit in the book, the idea that when, you know, we're pop, pop culture is such a monolith you know, in our everyday lives now. It's such this all-encompassing beast that when, when something like this happens, the natural thing becomes to, oh, compare it to a book that I read or a movie that I saw, partly mm-hmm. because, you know, none of us have ever dealt with an outbreak like this. But, you know, so or I shouldn't say none of us, but, you know, most of us, you know, really haven't dealt with anything like this before. And so, like, your comparisons are to, to movies and books, which, you know, I don't know if that's a great thing or not. I mean, it's natural to do so. So similar to, you know, with rabies, I think, you know, the, the novel started with a what if that I really can't say because it does spoil the book, but it was definitely mm-hmm. a part of the what if was was going to be, okay, I'll, I guess I'll try a riff on the zombie story or a zombie adjacent story. I, I had happened to read, uh, actually, I didn't read it. I listened to an audio book of, this, of a book called Rabid. I think that was published like in 2012 or 2013. And I sort of semi-ironically listened to the audiobook while taking my dog for walks. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like an interesting book. And like when I take my dog for walks, you know, we usually go for 45 minutes to an hour. So that's why I try to squeeze in listening to nonfiction or reading nonfiction books or consuming nonfiction books, maybe I should say. Uh, so anyway, so I, I listened to this book and I, you know, I really didn't know much about rabies other than frothing at the mouth, et cetera. And I just found it utterly fascinating, compelling. What a strange, you know, what a strange virus. There's very few that act like rabies, you know, with some of the bigger things that make it so different is that it's not found in the blood. It attaches directly to your nerve and it slowly crawls up your nervous, you know, crawls up your nerves towards your brain. So there's no blood tests, et cetera. Um, And just the impact that, that rabies has had, you know, just on humanity for centuries and whether it's actual civilization itself and also the impact upon folklore. And like so many, so many of our Western monsters, uh, I think you can trace back to like, you know, rabid humans. I mean, certainly, you know, werewolves, um, vampires, and obviously zombies now too. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, some of it was just, I had the fortune of, oh, rabies as a virus, I thought would fit my what if perfectly. 
And so really for most of the book, I, I, it's really, I mean, it's pretty much real rabies um, with a timeline of infection moved up, obviously, you know, real rabies can take, you know, weeks to maybe even months before the virus travels to your brain. You know, in my book, depending on where you bet, it's an hour or less. You know, I think because of if you're infected that much more quickly, it means you're sort of extra. It's, you know, my understanding, which isn't great <laughs> of virology is you're, you know, somewhat more virulent to the people who are, who are now, who become infected once it goes into their brain, act more violent and a little bit, you know, a lot more bitey than actual <laughs> uh, rabies victims. So yeah, rabies, it's a, it's a crazy virus. Well, well I, I've seen that, I mean, that, that this may be more kind of tabloid terror, I don't know. But I, I've been seeing a lot of tweets about the Department of Agriculture in the US dropping aerial rabies vaccines. Is Do you know something we don't? Is something going on here that we don't? I mean, it's, <laughs> or, is that, or is that a normal thing they do every year? Yeah, uh, it's funny. If you cl- I know there was one that was in Ohio. And if you, you know, if you click on the link and read about it, it's been something they've been doing since you know, right. the late 90s. And, and part of it is just to try to control the migration of a certain rabies virus from going, I think in, in, in Ohio's case, they're trying to keep the, the, you know, their strain of rabies from moving too far west or something like that. But yeah, no, okay. it's, it's, it's done fairly routinely to the point where like when I was writing the book, my wife found on Facebook, Oh, Hey, look, uh, you know, the new England agriculture wildlife just happened to announce that they're dropping rabies bait packs. I'm like, really? Oh, send me that link. You know, and it instantly went right into my first chapter. You know, and those are sort of like, you know, I'd never come across that in my research. It was just these funny happenstances that happen sometimes when you're writing a book. One of the parts of the book that, that really um, stands out is you use a phrase, a president unwilling and woefully unequipped to make rational science-based decisions. Now, it will as this continues, this podcast, there will be no secrecy about the fact that I am a what they would call a liberal lefty or I'm woke or I'm a SJW or I'm, I'm a cook or whatever. Uh-huh. But obviously we, we look at what's happening with, with Trump, with, with horror, you know, not just about the about COVID-19, but generally sure. speaking, we, we look with horror, but that line leaps out off the page um, when you read it. Now, when you were writing it, was that just a kind of satirical howl or, how do you feel about it now? Because it, it's such a striking thing to say as a, in, in what's become an almost real-time fictionalization of, of our situation. Um, I mean, so far as why I think of it now, I mean, you know, people are giving me credit, again, the prescient word. And honestly, you know, the, the least difficult thing to predict would be that if, a re, if a, you know, if we had a virus like that happen, that, you know, Trump's, respo- Trump's response would be awful. If anything, I underestimated how terrible and how lacking both in, in leadership, <laughs> lacking in every possible way, like his response would be to it. Yeah, you know, I would never have imagined that, even though there is mention of the, the virus being somewhat politicized in my novel as well, there's some people who have, you know, right-wing conspiracy theories about about the virus and its origin. And again, I didn't think that was hard to predict. I've been both fascinated and repulsed by how mainstreamed conspiracy theories have become in the United States but again, I think that wasn't hard to predict. And again, I think if anything, I, I miscalculated how mainstream it would be it would become. So I don't know. When I was writing the book, it, you know, I started it in July of 2018, finished it, finished edits in October of 2019. When I'm writing it, you know, I'm imagining this is happening now or near now. 
that's what I'm always trying to do when I'm writing a book is trying to have it appeal to the readers of now, even if it happens in a timeline that's previous. So, you know, that was just me writing about my, my frustration with anti-vaxxers and et cetera. So that, that came out in that paragraph, um, you know, and just a line that you mentioned and part for me, part of the, a bigger part of the, the reason why that was there is I, that occurs in a part of the book where I let the reader know, and to me, this is not a big spoiler. I've talked about this. I wanted to let the reader know that this was not the end of the world. This wasn't even the end of Massachusetts. And the idea behind that was I thought it would make the story a little bit more poignant and you know more tragic for the for the characters who don't make it. They could have just held out. They had just had help to make it through another couple of days, another couple of weeks, however long it took. You know, th- th- they could have been okay like most of the people. And that was and that was in my head from early on. Like I really didn't want to write a novel that became this apocalypse because we've seen that done, you know, a, a million times and done very well. I just wanted to write something a little bit different. That no, this was not an apocalypse. It was not going to be sort of a loving description of how everything ended. To me, it was more like a, I don't want to call it a loving description, but a description about how everything was made, made more, you know, so much more difficult to overcome for, you know, for a variety of reasons. Most of it on the viruses, because of the virus itself, but also because of what I hoped was the very sort of human response to it, both good and bad. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think you get that across. So you say it's not even the end of Massachusetts. That's I found that the most striking part of the novel in that there is this sense of it being a catastrophic, but, but relatively, I don't know. I don't want to say small time. It's because, you know, it's awful things happen, but it's a localized disaster. And obviously I was just, as I was saying to you before we started this interview in in the UK where I'm based, we're currently on a heightened level of, of, of lockdown. And it is, it is quite a, quite a weird situation to be in where there are, there are, you know, localized disasters and, and different things happening in different regions. So, what are things like where you are now in Massachusetts? How 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 are things generally? Well, uh, we were one of the hardest hit areas initially when the when the virus first, you know, sort of started spreading in, in the United States. You know, so really it was us in New York City, you know, the Northeast in general that was hit the hardest. So now, I mean, we're doing we're faring much better than other parts of the country, and it you know it continues to be this weird balance of trying to keep some things open for the economy while suffering quote unquote acceptable losses, which is such a you know strange thing to talk about. So I don't know, like, I mean, we're approaching, you know, schools are supposed to start in the fall uh, or actually schools are supposed to start in Massachusetts, you know, at the end of this month, which we're pretty much at in, in September, you know, and there's a lot of still back and forth with teachers unions and, and, you know, each, basically each town, each school district is making their own decisions. And, you know, as a school teacher myself, I teach at a, at a private school. That's what we call over here in the U.S. Where, where it's not run by the state government. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, believe me, I, you know, I have terrible sympathy, well, not terrible sympathy, but I sympathize really with, with, with all the kids that, I mean, this is just going to be this massive mental health disaster for for teenagers and tweens, you know, because who need to be around their classmates for their for their development and for their, you know, for their mental health, and, it, and it's not being met. So I, I just don't know what what the answer is, you know, short of trying to do everything as safely as possible. So I don't know, like what what, what ends up being worse. I mean, I I certainly I certainly don't know. Um, you know, I do think at, at least like my state, I feel like they're doing they're making moral and and decisions and. It, 
as best as they can with the information that we have. That's that's certainly not the case in most of the rest of the United States. Yeah. So I've read everything you've written. Um, and I find you, and, and I, ho- I hope this is, is something that you're happy with, by the way, because this is, uh, yeah, I, I find you the bleakest horror writer out there. Like, not the most horrible, not not the most, uh, by certainly not the most disgusting, but but the bleakest horror writer, um, kind of culminating in Cabin in, the, Cabin in the End of the World. But this feels like a more optimistic novel to me. Now, would you agree with that? That's a great question. And, you know, I do appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I do think there's still a measure of hope in, in some of my books, but uh, maybe a bleak kind of hope, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just the hope. You know, I, I don't know. Cause I find horror, I find horror can, is generally hopeful in just that if horror is, you know, if you can boil a horror story down to like a reveal of a terrible truth, I find hope in the value and the, and the recognition of that truth. Even if it, the truth is like, we're all going to die. I don't know. I, I find like, comfort in the fact that there are other people who recognize that terrible truth. Anyway, one of the things that I guess, you know, most will we'll never know people who have read this book, you know, and believe me, this is like last on the list of reasons why I wish the pandemic never happened, <laughs> but it, it is bizarre that, you know, I, I wrote this book and it'll never be not read in the context of 2020. So when I, you know, with the exception of maybe a few people who got to read it, like before things started happening, when I wrote the book, I will tell you that I felt like the ending was more horrifying in a way was was horrifying in a, in a sort of different way. But since since everything has happened, my change on the ending, my view on the ending has changed, and it's more hopeful than I maybe than I initially intended it to be. If that I don't know if that makes sense because I don't want to talk about <laughs> I don't want to spoil the ending. But I mean that's sort of weird, like how even like for the writer how. <laughs> you know, what, what's going on around you in real life is going to change, you know, change some work, you know, change a book, uh, even if you wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Would you have, would you have changed anything about the novel? Obviously this might be a difficult question to answer because of spoilers, but would you have changed mm-hmm. anything now that you've had a firsthand experience of a real world pandemic? Oh, I, I probably, I'm, I, I don't say this to me. I'm not, I'm very proud of this book. I'm glad it's out there. But I'm I'm more glad that I wrote it before it happened because if you know if we were in this now I would not write this book I know because there are just too many people who have who have lost you know other people I I, I wouldn't want to go into into that <laughs> especially now um, that sort of emotional territory without you know knock on wood having experienced it so as far as like what would I have changed I mean maybe like small things like how <laughs> people take temperatures and stuff like that. You know, small little detail things. Uh, otherwise, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I try not to think of like my books as to like, well, what would I change now? Because I feel like it just opens up like this whole <laughs> can of worms. You know, it takes me so long to get to a point where I want to, I'm ready to give it to a publisher and let it be out there that I try to really divorce myself from thinking about or dwelling on like how I would change it. I mean, and that's certainly not to say that I think it's a perfect novel because I, I don't. But so I look at these things as, you know, almost as like these chunks of time, like in 2018 to <laughs> mid 2019, this is the story, you know, that I spent my year, year plus working on. This is what I had to say for that year, year and a half for all its faults. And, you know, hopefully, you know, good points too. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting that you say about, you know, um, 
you wouldn't write it now. And I, and I do, I do have this awful feeling that there are, there are death drawers around the world currently full <laughs> of people's COVID-19 lockdown pandemic story. And I just kind of think I want everyone to take a collective breath and wait five years before releasing them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, again, that's not to say like, you know, I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't judge anyone for writing like, you know, the, the COVID story. I mean, I have some short stories that I'm planning on writing that are definitely going to be more about like COVID life you know, hopefully refracted in different ways. So it's not so like painfully obvious, but I mean, how, how could, I don't know, how could a musician or a writer or anybody, you know, creating something not <laughs> have it affect what you're, what you're doing right now. Like the novel I'm working on now that I had the idea for before COVID, thankfully, <laughs> um, even though really in a lot of ways has nothing to do with, with living with the coronavirus. I mean, it can't help, but like I re- I'm already seeing things sneaking in. Um, sort of subtextually that, oh yeah, people, you know, I, I read this and go, oh yeah, <laughs> that totally sort of fits with some of, you know, the anxieties of what we're dealing with now. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's fine. I just think somewhere in terms of COVID stories, someone somewhere is locked down in a haunted house. That's got to be the case. And I want to know what the serial killers are doing. You know, that's my, my two big <laughs> questions about all of this. Um, but coming back to what you were saying, this is something that really interests me because Part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is that I am, in a month's time, I'm quitting my job and I am taking six months to write a novel. I'm finally taking the plunge. So basically, I have a very understanding and well-paid wife, which is why I get the chance to do this. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'm I'm taking the plunge. I'm using this podcast as a way to basically make contacts, I think, and and ask everyone who could give me any advice to give me some advice. But (laughs) that question aside, what I've had to confront is, Oh God, do I, do I, dis, do I write my novel in a world in which the the pandemic is happening or has happened? And you mentioned that you you're currently writing a novel. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, what do, do you do? We have to to do we have to engage with it, or can we all just kind of go? Hopefully, life will be normal in two years. So let's pretend it didn't happen. What what's your take? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I. It would be like pretending it doesn't happen. I mean, it, I, it's going to be there even if like you're not watching people walking around with masks, et cetera. Um, you know, that's going to affect the way people think, you know, even when things, if and when things quote unquote return to normal. So, um, I mean, <laughs> the novel I'm working on now, it, it starts in 1988 and slowly goes forward and I'll probably end it around 2017, 2018. So I really don't have to deal with, <laughs> okay, yeah. you know, deal with people's behavior for afterwards. But again, this just happened to be the story that I was planning on telling anyway. Um, so no, I mean, I guess you would have to figure out what would make more sense for your story, right? I mean, it sounds trite, but as a writer, that was one of the hardest things for me to figure out slash learn was everything you put in there has to be there for a reason. Even if you don't like, if you don't know the reason, the moment you do it, that's okay. Cause I think trusting your subconscious is a big part of writing too. But at a certain point in the book, including like when you're all, you know, if and when you're finished, if you can't explain to yourself why you put something in there, um, then it's got to go. So I think that's a big decision that you'll have to wrestle with is whether or not it's going to be pre or post COVID. Cause I think that that changes the story potentially. Or not potentially, it does. It would change the story if it's going to be before or after. Yeah, it is a tough one. It's, it's a question I'm going to ask everyone I speak to, I think, because 
it'd, it'd be good to get a sense of where people sit with that. Um, on a more technical note, for the few people out there listening to a podcast about horror writing who haven't read your books, you hit the ground running in, in a big way with A Head Full of Ghosts, which I think is potentially ties with John Langan's The Fisherman as the, the most important horror novel of the last 10 years. So I think they are the two standout texts of the last 10 years. And then you wrote Disappearance at Devil's Rock, and then you wrote Cabin at the End of the World. And I've been rereading these recently. Um, and what's, what's come to the fore for me, sorry for this long-winded question, but what's come to the fore for me is that in all of them, you talk about, to some extent, truth and unreliability. So in Head Full of Ghosts, you know, it is itself a piece of unreliable fiction, similarly to an extent with um, with Disappearance at Devil's Rock. Cabin in the Woods is about the manipulation of the media to support an ideology. And in Survivor Song, you directly recreate social media and kind of the chaos of misinformation and how it can worsen a crisis. That's a very, that, that isn't really a question, it's a statement, but what I want to know is, <laughs> why do you return again and again to this idea of unreliable truth and unreliable media? Is it something that you think is a particular terror at the moment? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, first, thank you so much for the very kind words for Headful of Ghosts and John Lang, and John's okay. John's pretty good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. John's The Fisherman is wonderful, as is all of John's work. Um, no, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've always, maybe it's a reflection of, I don't know, my age, my my generation Xness, where like, you know, I was a teenager, there was no internet. You know, maybe there started to be whispers of this as a possibility. Um, and then like you heard about it coming and then like the first time, like people I knew got computers and then, you know, AOL dial up where you would have like, you know, your phone, um, you'd have to dial up through your phone to be this horrible static. And, you know, so like the internet was like, wow, this is going to be amazing. We're all going to be interconnected. And, you know, it's the age of information. We'll be able to, you know, share all this information, et cetera. And then to watch it in real time, just, I mean, that's not to say there's, you know, there's plenty of good with the internet, but to watch the dark side of it, just, just start to really encroach on everything in our lives is, I don't know, for me, it's been one of the bigger disappointments. You know, it's probably a reflection of my own sort of hopeful gullibility that, oh, the internet's going to make, you know, make the truth easier to find um, when it's, when it's in fact made it harder to find, you know, and, and when writing a horror novel, I mean, to me, I'm always drawn to stories that are about, um, ambiguity or about like unsurety, um, like how, you know, how our days and our lives, our memories and our identity are, are, are much more shakier, rockier footing than, you know, than we want to dwell, than, you know, than we're comfortable dwelling on. I mean, I don't sit around dwelling on that every day too. That would, <laughs> that would be madness. Um, you know, but th those are things I always come back thinking, you know, th you know, th thinking about in, in a lot of stories, you know, so with, cabin at the end of the world it's funny like i i typically even though i don't intend to it's hard for me not to think about one novel leading into the next when i'm in it like, or, or to look for a connection from one book to the next you know so for a while i was thinking okay so the cabin at the end of the world was about the horror and hope of of choosing to go on like in the in the worst of everything and survivor song was like okay so this is sort of the next step this is the horror and hope of survival um yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know if I thought about it consciously, but, you know, hearing that question, it made me think, yeah, you know, I think 
you know, one of the horrors to me of Survivor Song is, you know, in those three novels that you previously mentioned, you know, the internet misinformation or all the information that you're hit with makes it harder to determine if something supernatural is happening. In Survivor Song, you've got a virus. There's no ambiguity about a virus that's doing this thing. Yet, still, um, you know, there were so many people. What, what was the ambiguity? Part, ambiguous part is the reaction of of people to a truth that they can't avoid, and 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 then try to bend it to something that it's not. Um, I mean, that's not a huge part of the novel, but it's certainly a big part of, the, I guess, the second act for sure. Yeah, for me, it's the way in those early pages you just. I mean, I know you said the second that, but for me, in the early pages, that you have those facsimiles of Facebook posts and social media posts, right. and it's it's just it is amazing how much you nailed the kind of aggregate public reaction to this crisis because it you know you transplant a few certain words and a few certain pieces of key terminology, and it, it is you go on. I mean, you go on Twitter at the minute; it's a cesspit, you know of conspiracy and, and anti-conspiracy and etc and it you just you just nailed it did you spend a lot of time on social media D do you spend a lot of time on social media to, to kind of get that or was it just intuition uh i mean i spend a lot of time in social media but it just <laughs> not not purposely to get that i mean just i mean just being there enough i, I felt like yeah i didn't think that was hard to predict either that you know people would you know go to social media and act like that just having seen you know threads and and you mentioned twitter etc because yours is not the only pandemic book that came out this summer you know um there's always a, a glut of kind of pandemic books but i think what makes yours different and we touched on this earlier about it's you know it's not the end of the world what makes yours different is that as as in our current pandemic the your crisis is is containable enough that people are able to comment on what's going on it's not it's not stephen king's captain trips where the world simply right. ceases to be you know you, you've got a pandemic in which people can there is still a semblance of people going about their business and how how would they react in that situation but that isn't the apocalypse that any of us picture that's you know that's quite a that seems obvious now but it actually when you look back at you writing this 18 months before the pandemic that's actually quite a massive leap of imagination to come up with a pandemic that that doesn't you know destroy the world because that's what we all think of these things as in literary terms so yeah it's just it i find it terrifyingly accurate um to the extent <laughs> that i think someone should check up on you about what you're writing next and we should um get prepared for it yeah well i think i it's i would just say briefly i mean i've always i mean one of my i think a lot of people one of my fears is you know living to see the end of the world um, that's a fear, but also, I mean, there's a weird fantasy element to it because, and, and, and you see it in so many of the movies and films that the idea that, oh, you know, I would be important enough to be the last person. Right. And then like, how, you know, how would I be the hero in the scenario? Um, and that's what so many, you know, the movies and stories sort of posit. I mean, you know, whether directly or, or indirectly. Um, so no, like, I mean, I went to it trying to make it as realistic as possible. Like. I think, you know, short of an all-out nuclear war or, you know, a giant asteroid hitting us, I mean, the apocalypse would just be this giant change that many people would survive. Obviously not everybody, but then everything would be different afterwards. Um, you know, I, I had a friend who knows way more than I do about uh, politics, especially, you know, in other, other areas other than the United States. And, you know, she would tell me about like, you know, these, you know, these other countries that have 
you know, had these economic or political apocalypses, but still their societies continue. And, you know, a few years later, they're sort of not back on their feet, but they're now existing as a sort of, I don't know, another form of their country kind of thing. And, um, you know, she would joke that, you know, civilization is a lot harder to, to kill off or to destroy than people think. You know, so those were some of the things I was thinking about. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that's <laughs> a little bit scarier when you're in it because there's the realization that, oh, shit, this is going to take a long time if I'm going to survive this, you know? Yeah, I, I think a lot of apocalyptic fiction has is, is been plagued by this kind of almost apocalyptic glee. And I think a lot of that, that comes from the fact that we live in this we live in this world where there are so many systems and, you know, we're all tied into the capitalist system and, you know, it's all so mired and paralyzed and, and the apocalypse mm. comes along and gives you a way to break the wheel um, and rebuild from scratch. And I think one of the, one of the, depre- well, obviously it's a great thing that we haven't all died, but one of the, one of the, <laughs> one of the depressing things that's come from this is the realization that not only have things not really changed, um, but the same old bullshit is being is being used to exploit what's currently happening, uh, and I think that's a bit of a a bit of a devastating thing to realise. Um, yeah. But but yeah. Anyway, um, that's my me getting on my on my, on my salt box. Um, coming back to you, so I mean, we've spoken before, and a head full of ghosts is, as I've said, masterpiece. Anyone who hasn't read it, get out there and read it right now. Um, but you, I've seen where you've referred to it in an interview with Simon Beswick. Uh, I've done my research here. And you referred to A Handful of Ghosts as, as your statement of purpose as a horror writer. What do you mean by that? Wow. What the hell did I mean by that? That sounds pretty Sorry. cool, though. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's a good line. No, no. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, that, that book was the first time I was ever able to write a horror novel, uh, even though mm. I'd been writing horror my whole writing life, anything, anything of length prior to Head Full of Ghosts was more darkly comedic, satirical, and not horrific. You know, w- which makes sense to me because horror and, and humor, or satire in particular, are I think two sides of a coin, right? You're, you can react to life's absurdities either in horror or, or make fun of it in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. One, like when I had the idea for Head Full of Ghosts, I was just really excited. Oh, I, you know, this is going to be the first time I'm trying a horror novel, uh, you know, at, at this length. And um, early on in the process, once I knew I wasn't going to avoid the William Peter Blatty elephant in the room in regards to the story and The Exorcist, that I felt like that opened me up to make comparisons and comment on, you know, everything that I loved and everything that I didn't love about horror. So... I think when I say statement of purpose, to me, this was like, hey, this is the kind of horror story that I like, you know, in regards to, to ambiguity and even it being progressive in nature. And what I mean by that is it's not this, you know, the story isn't about a restoration of the status quo. It's about representing to me a truth that, you know, when, when these events happen, whether it's horror or not horror, when those events when happen, when these reveals of the terrible truth that we talked about nothing is ever the same. And so I guess my statement of purpose would be, you know, I've tended to try to have whatever sort of big reveal or big horror happen probably at the two thirds point. And then I really like focusing on, you know, how are these people changed afterwards? What are the decisions they're going to make? You know, how they live through this? How does anybody live through this? And, you know, I try to force it into a story, but hopefully, you know, those, those are the things that I'm, I'm typically asking it 
you know, at the horror novel length. Okay, so you keep returning to this 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 term, the terrible truth. I'm guessing, and I, I could be wrong, by that, are you talking about the fact that we're all going to die? Is that the terrible <laughs> truth? Oh, I, I mean, I meant like the terrible truth in reference to whatever truth the, the horror, you know, the, the novel is talking about or something. You know, in A Head okay. Full of Ghost, you know, my hope was that the very na- ambiguity, you know, whether or not we know Marjorie is possessed or if something supernatural is happening or not to me the whole horror of the novel is the idea of not knowing to me that's sort of like the terrible truth is that you'll never know for sure not only about marjorie but you'll never know for sure you know what <laughs> what this thing existence is you know yeah so i'm trying to think so i wouldn't say it's one it's it's definitely not like one specific terrible truth for each story you know and sometimes i don't think i could articulate it very well well you say that paul let me jump in you say that because I, my favourite thing, you, I mean, I love A Head Full of Ghosts. It's my favourite of your novels. Um, and at the risk of this becoming a fanboy exercise, my favourite <laughs> thing you've ever written is, uh, because it genuinely frightened me, is your short story, Haunted House Tour, um, forgive me, I forgot the name, but Haunted House Tour, $1 oh. per person, something, what, oh, that's really bad. The, the name, right. the exact name escapes me. But it's in, it, it's the opening novel in um, Ellen Datlow's echoes anthology of ghost stories i'm going to do the unforgivable thing now of reading you a paragraph of your own of your own fiction Um, (laughs) and i think i think you say you can't articulate it i think this is the the greatest distillation of of the terrible truth of horror that i've ever read Um, and i'm doing this to give other people who may not have read you some sense of your writing as well but you you write so it's a story in which a young boy you know, becomes by going on a haunted house tour um, of a girl's house who he has feelings for, he becomes aware there are certain truths to life and there are certain truths about mortality. Would you say that's an accurate summary of description of the story? Yeah, yeah. Right. And you write this, you write that this is, this is him talking in the first person. And he says that I'm telling you that this was the first time I realized or intellectualized that I would be dead someday. I imagine my death, the final closing of my eyes, and total and utter blankness of, I could only think of the phrase, not me, the void of not me. And I wonder if the rest of my life would pass like how summer vacations passed. Would I be about to die and sit there asking how did it all go so quickly? I think that is just, that is the distillation for me of what of, of horror, of the truth at the heart of horror. And once again, there's no question there, but I, that's what I thought you meant by the terrible truth. Well, well thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. And I do like that story quite a bit, um, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, by all um, means, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I definitely think that's something that a lot of horror stories are certainly about. I mean, again, I think you can... Bring, you know, I talked about uncertainty earlier, right? The uncertainty of our everyday lives. But, you know, we obviously can push that. And that story does push it all the way out to the uncertainty of death. Like, what is it? You know, is it, you know, is it a bomb or is it something else? No, and I've certainly wrestled with that in a lot of short stories. I think, you know, Notes from the Dog Walker, mm-hmm. uh, if anyone has a chance to read that one, is definitely one of them. Um, you know, and I'm finding that that sort of... <laughs> that sort of rumination or question is becoming part of stories that are a lot more autobiographical, like both notes from the dog walker is very autobiographical and, you know, the echoes story that you just read from, you know, I took you know parts of my life and made it into the story. Yeah. So I know I, it, part of it's just a reflection of me getting older and, 
these are things you start to think about when you get older. I mean, I think you think about it all the time, but it certainly becomes more real the older you get. And it becomes more real when you're in sort of the situation that we're all in right now too, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Dare I ask, what are you, you mentioned you're working on a novel that starts at the eighties and moves forward. Are you in a position to tell us in any degree what that's about or are you keeping it close to your chest? Um, so it has a title, it's called the Paul Bearers Club. It's, I'll say it's being written sort of as a, as a memoir, faux memoir, this character <laughs> who doesn't give his real name. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what else I can say or can't say, but anyway, so he's <laughs> writing this memoir that, st- that starts when he's in his last year in high school um, in the, in the U S that's where he starts his memoir. And he, 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 he's not a very popular child at school. Doesn't have very many friends. Uh, and part of like his scheme or plan to get into a better college is he starts this pallbearers club where he goes to a local funeral home and volunteers to serve as a pallbearer for um, homeless or elderly or, or people that don't have very many families showing up to their funeral. And a strange, a strange woman who's older than him, we don't know how much older, ends up joining the club with him and she becomes like this important figure in his life. And after every chapter that he writes, this woman writes so almost like a rebuttal chapter saying, oh, this didn't happen or, you know, making, making comments in between on what's going on. And she even like marks up his manuscript and stuff like that. So, so there you go with your, with your reliability yeah. again. Yeah, no, this one is definitely, you know, after it's definitely unreliable. I definitely wanted to go back to it after Survivor Song. Um, I also wanted to, especially after the last two books, Survivor Song and and Cabinet at the End of the World, were in both were very much in like compressed timelines. And, you know, in some ways, it could be described as a thriller with, with a lot happening plot wise. And, you know, this book is a lot more of a slow burn, sort of meandering. Um, a lot more space, I guess, to explore sort of some inner thoughts, et cetera. And hopefully that's okay. We'll see. <laughs> and wh- when is that? Have you got a publication date for that? Uh, I think summer of 2022. The Paul Bearers Club. Yeah, it's due to my publisher in May of 21. Okay. Okay. Well, look out for that then. Definitely. Um, and lastly, have you? is there any update on the film adaptation, Head, Head Full of Ghosts? Is it still with Team Downey? According, according to your Wikipedia page, it is, but has that changed? <laughs> yeah, uh, Team Downing is still one of the producing teams. Uh, Allegiance Theater is the other production team. There's a new uh, studio involved, or financer involved, Cross Creek Pictures. And Scott Cooper is now directing it with Margaret Qualley set to play, um, Adult Mary. Um, I guess what I could tell you is it feels like they're really close to start filming, if not for, you know, if not for covid yeah, I think they, they wanted to start filming this past summer. So now it seems like it's just a matter of trying to find a window of health, honestly, without trying to sound too jokey. Um, no, no, sure. you know, so maybe, so maybe later this fall, they might get to, to head up to Canada or something to film it. So it, it feels like it's close. Um, you know, hopefully knock on wood. We'll see. So to finish off, um, I ask, well, you're the first guest, so I am going to ask, um, each of the guests to answer a like a, a rapid fire round of questions. Um, these are just some. So it's just it's to give a kind of cohesive whole to the to the podcast series. Um, so I want I want your gut instinctive reactions to these questions. If that's all right by you. Yes. Okay. Let's fire away. There's four questions. So don't think. Just answer. 
Um, first of all, what was your gateway to horror? Uh, a program called Creature Double Feature that showed when I was, you know, really young. You know, this is before cable television. Every Saturday, our local channel in Boston w would show two movies. The first one was usually a Godzilla movie, and that was the hook for me. Uh, <laughs> I love the Godzilla movies. And then the, I would stay for the second movie, but the second movie would always scare the living crap out of me. <laughs> the second movie was, you know, sometimes a, horror, a hammer horror film or usually like cheesy 50s B movies like Attack of the Killer Shrews, Attack of the Colossal Man, anything that had attack in the front. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Second question. If you could recommend one book to the people listening to this podcast, what would it be and why? Not your own book. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to cheat and give you two. I can't do one. So one is Mariana Enriquez's Things We Lost in the Fire. It's my favorite horror short story. It's really my favorite short story collection of this century. And I think especially if people are interested in horror writing, you should read that collection because every story is so different, you know, and she really tries on a bunch of different sort of modes of horror and, and it's always successful. I would also recommend maybe outside the box, Roberto Bolaño's 2666. I, I find myself very interested in these works that aren't, that, that definitely wouldn't be called horror by most people, but where horror sort of just sort of unexpectedly just goes into the, you know, is there, I don't know. Cause I, I kind of feel like <laughs> that mirrors sort of everyday lives. Like you, you know, the idea of uncertainty, you're going along and then boom, there's this, you know, month long <laughs> quarantine, you know, so when Bolaño's 2666, you know, what he does with that book, you know, there's a section of the book that's as horrific as anything I've ever read. Is, is that the section with the, the, the list of murders? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, have, and, ha and having read more of his stuff, like he was definitely interested in horror. You know, he has a, I forget the name of the short story, but a, a short story where he basically is just telling you the plot, some B zombie movie. Um, and and it's, it's quite effective. You know, he was, it's too bad he, I would have loved to have seen him, you know, write anything more because I love his work, but I would, love to, I would have loved to have seen him like commit to writing like a horror novel. Sorry, this isn't very lightning, is it? But I'm giving, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, pausing before my answer. <laughs> that's fine. It's the gut reaction. That's what I want. Um, third question. Um, I've already mentioned my plans for the next six months. What single piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror novelist like myself? I think the only piece of universal advice for any writer is you have to read. A t you have to read, 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 read. And I think for horror writers, I would say, you know, read outside of your genre. Obviously, it's important to read in your genre. But um, I think w when you read books that are, you know, whether it's, I don't know, nonfiction or literary fiction or, or crime or, or whatever, something that's not horror, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot to learn. I think a lot that you can take from those to bring to horror that, that will help make it seem fresh. Okay. And the last question, and the most important question, because we are, after all, talking scared, um, what truly scares you? Oh, everything. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, as a kid, I was such a scaredy cat, like afraid of the dark, afraid, you know, afraid of all these movies. But I'll say the thing that's, but the thing from books or film that have scared me the most, if I'm going to go by the amount of nightmares given is the movie Jaws. When I first saw it, when I was probably 10 going on 11, like, that I'm not exaggerating when I said it gave me, you know, five to six years of shark nightmares where most of my dreams it wouldn't start off like in the water, but I would end up in the water and it would end up with Jaws attacking me. It remains now as an adult, it's one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. And, and I've seen it probably 50 times. 
but I still don't watch the scene where Quince gets uh, bitten in half. Sorry for the spoiler, but <laughs> when that when that scene comes on, I cover my head with the pillow, which actually is still very horrifying as you just hear him screaming. <laughs> and then the screen cuts out, um, and then I wait like another five seconds, and then I continue watching the movie. Okay, right. Well, not have guessed Jaws. Um, but that, yeah, that's interesting. Shark Week must be fun in your house. <laughs> anyway, Paul, well, listen, I'll let you get away. Um, thank you very, very much. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was fun. So that was quite the coup, kicking off one of the biggest names in horror. For those of you who haven't yet read Paul, um, I really can't recommend his stuff enough. A Head Full of Ghosts is a possession novel with a with a difference. It, it exists in a world that's fully aware of the exorcism subgenre. It riffs on Peter Blatty. It riffs on the Friedkin film. It riffs on a whole range of modern media. Um, it's meta as hell. Uh, it's also very funny and, and truly scary. So believe the hype on that one, people. Cabin at the End of the World is incredible too. It's a story about a family that you find yourself desperately rooting for. They're invaded in the cabin by a group hoping to avert the end of the world, hence the title. That one involves a terrible, really heartbreaking choice. It's not for the faint-hearted, and and that's not a cliche in this instance. It is a standout novel, and, and I really can't recommend it enough. I'd also point you towards Paul's short fiction, especially the two stories he mentioned in the podcast. Notes from the Dog Walker, um, he briefly mentioned, and, and that's included in his published collection, Growing Things. It's another super metafictional, weird head scrambler of a story. I'm not quite sure what to make of it in, in many ways, but I know it was powerful. Uh, the story that I embarrassingly forgot the title of, despite saying it's my favourite thing he's written, uh, that's called Haunted House Tour One Per Person. And you'll find it in Echoes, which is Ellen Datlow's mammoth ghost story anthology from last year. On a side note, there's another great, great story in that collection called The Puppet Hotel by Gemma Files. And that's the scariest thing I've read this year. So we mentioned a few other books during the conversation. Um, I thought I'd give you a run through of those in case anything piqued your interest. First of all, we mentioned The Stand by Stephen King. And if you need any more information on that, then I don't know what you've been doing with your time. Go forth and read that, people. It is an absolute stone-cold classic and more pertinent than could possibly be in 2020. Paul mentioned as a as kind of research resource, Rabid, A Cultural History of the World's Most Diabolical Virus. That's by Bill Wasick and Monica Murphy. I shan't be reading that one because I'll never sleep again, but fill your boots. Paul mentioned Mariana Enrique's Things We Lost in the Fire, which I haven't read, but I've heard great things about from a lot of people. So if anyone's read that and they have any thoughts, you know, let me know. Always interested in your thoughts too. And lastly, there were two Roberto Bolano texts mentioned. The first is 2666, which is a sprawling, epic treatise on violence on and around the American border. And the short story that he that Paul mentioned by Bolano about zombies is called The Colonel's Son, and that can be found in the collection The Secret of Evil. 
For those of you who found this show organically this week, thanks for listening and I hope you'll be back next week. Tell a friend and if you can, leave me a review on iTunes. The word is that the more reviews you have, the more easy you are to find. So all help is appreciated. Um, Reviews saying his northern accent is ridiculous may count, but will be taken with resentment. Um, You can find the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod. Repeat, that is TalkScaredPod. Talking Scared was already taken, um, annoyingly, by someone who wrote one tweet back in 2015 and is presumably just sitting there reveling in having the handle that I crave. Um, At some point, I may end up putting together an an Instagram account to that's if I can bring myself to get involved in anything that has Facebook's fingerprints on it. We'll, we'll, We'll see. I'll be back next week in conversation with another modern horror icon. Uh, and he truly is an icon. But until then, stay healthy, wear a mask if you're asked to, be nice to all ladies and stray dogs, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.